Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people, live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Leslie Marshall, welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk. Good to have you with us today or back with us wherever you get us, wherever you listen, wherever you watch. We really appreciate you. Um, Happy New Year once again for people uh, that are just getting back. Some people are taking this week off because of MLK Day on Monday. I'm noticing that. It's sort of like you kind of took Christmas off and New Year's, go back to work, take more time off. Very smart, I guess. All right. Uh, anyway, good to have you with us today. So much to talk about. Good to have back with us in the new year. Happy New Year to him, Scott Paul. He's president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Now, the AAM, as you know, and if you don't, they're a partnership established by some of America's leading manufacturers and the United Steelworkers Union. And for over 16 years now, Scott and the AAM have worked to make American manufacturing a top-of-mind issue for voters and our national leaders, and have done it through effective advocacy, innovative research, and a savvy PR relations strategy. Apologize, I don't have the ring light today, so you're getting the creepy version of me with my makeup melted from my earlier TV appearance. Um, But it's about what we're talking about and who we're talking to. And that is Scott today. Check out the website. I know it came in so handy over the holidays, but there's so much more than just that holiday gift guide that made an America holiday gift guide. AmericanManufacturing.org. On Twitter, at Keep It Made in USA. That's what we want to do. And many of you are helped doing that by using this gift guide. And it's not just for Christmas and the holidays, uh, you know, the winter holidays, but throughout all the year. You know, you have birthdays, you have anniversaries, you have a retirement gift for somebody you're working with. And uh, be sure to follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM and at Keep It Made in USA for AAM. I mentioned those are both on formerly Twitter, now known as X. Good to have you with us, Scott. Happy New Year. Glad to have you back with us. How are you today? Hey, it's so great to be with you, Leslie. Happy New Year. Want to give a big shout out to you for raising up the gift guide. You know, we've been doing it for 10 years. I know you had Beth from our team on the program. Yeah. We had the biggest year ever by far, and, uh, and and it was a smashing success. So we're looking forward to year year 11 of that. I, I got to I gotta tell you, there are people asking me, Mark and I even were going, going through, I mean, there's some crazy things. I'm going to say without saying, okay, that some of our business associates, we had ordered some things for like, you know, you, you know, at Christmas and you don't always know who delivers it. I mean, you, so I may go to, you know, 1-800-GIFT, right? Mm-hmm. And then 1-800-GIFT may use FedEx, which is not union, Right. And, you know, you, you want to support people that are supporting workers, union workers. And you don't always know because you may have four packages and two are being delivered with UPS union and two are not. Yeah. Well, those two will not get delivered to a union office <laughs> if they're FedEx. So anyway, we, we the, the gift guide was very helpful to us, believe it or not, to make sure that gifts got into the hands of our business associates that we awesome. wanted them to. I swear to God. And uh, that was uh, very helpful. And um, I had people, seriously, I had 
friends of mine asking me, but, you know, last year they asked, but I'm glad you said your numbers were up because I can tell you our numbers were up as, as emails, online uh, questions, phone calls we got, or even people in our wow. circle of family and friends. Mark, That's would great. you agree this year we had more people asking about companies and that gift guide and where we found that kind of stuff? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was easily, uh, easily the most we've ever had. And we've had some good response. But I think, you know, the way it was presented and Beth did such a great job and you did too, Leslie, um, right before the holidays, it was really terrific. And obviously, <laughs> Scott always does. Scott's like yeah. an even 300 hitter all star game every year. You never have to worry about it. <laughs> I'm Whatever blessed. that means. Yeah. yeah uh, any, anyway, so Scott, I'm so, glad to hear, I'm so glad to hear that because I was thinking to myself, I wonder if he's seeing and feeling the bump that we're seeing and feeling. We're just a piece of that. You know, so I'm very psyched about that. Uh, awesome. Um, you know what? Uh, when you look at the uh, number of jobs in 2023 for manufacturing, that number looks weak. But you're going to tell us there's more to it than that. And you also talk to us uh uh, today, you're going to talk to us about how the future looks bright. Um, I want to uh, read a, a quote that you had written um, on LinkedIn, and we always, you know, try and, you know, repost the stuff that you're talking about there at AIM on LinkedIn. Quote, I thought the labor market in manufacturing was worth discussing as last year turned out to be a pretty lackluster one for factory job creation. Only 12,000 manufacturing jobs added all of last year, according to BLS data, and that compares to 390,000 added in 2022. That is quite a drop, 390,000 to 12,000. While the overall job market still seems pretty warm to hot. So what gives, you ask? I would ask you, what gives? And how can how can we go from 390K to 12K, to 12K, yet we have a positive outlook? What gives? Yeah, that that is a really good question. And I, you know, I raise alarm bells when there's reason to. And obviously, you know, when you look at a drop like that, you got to pay attention to it. But there are a couple of explanations that go kind of well beyond, well, like Biden's not doing this job on this or anything like that. And part of it honestly has to do with uh, consumer behavior. And, you know, we bought a lot of goods during the pandemic, as you know, because that's all you could do. You couldn't travel anywhere or, you know, people didn't do as much hospitality spending. And, and so they bought a lot of goods and that finally started to cool off. And so that was that was something that was baked into the numbers a little bit. There was just a, a little a little lower demand. I want to jump in because yeah. then, then it could say, because honestly, that is common sense. right? I mean, during the pandemic, there were things we bought that we are not buying now, such as gloves sure. and masks and COVID tests when they became available that we can now get for free, so many per year for free. Um, and, uh, and and like you said, you're, you're home. And in addition, people were panicking. So what do you do when you're panicking? You stock up, whether it be, oh my God, I couldn't find toilet paper. So let me buy six months worth, right? Um, you know, I couldn't find paper towels, you yeah. know, water, water bottles or, you know, what, and then yeah. it's like, okay, I'm going to put like, you know, meat and veggies or whatever in my freezer. As a matter of fact, something you probably know this, Scott, but not everybody does. Um, after we finally got out of lockdown, many of us went out, me and my girls for cocktails. And when we got a cocktail, instead of a piece of fruit, it was dried fruit. Right. Have you seen this? A lot of dried oh, yeah. fruit in cocktails, yeah. a lot of dried fruit is garnishes. And I asked the bartender and he said, well, so the fruit wouldn't go bad. 
during in 2020, mm-hmm. people like freeze dried or dried their fruit so they could use it. Yeah, it's so, fascinating. So there's yeah. still so people are still using some things that were purchased in 2020. Right. So right. to your yeah, to your point, not buying as much stuff, but yeah. it's not because we're not being consumers like you said, we're we're just not sitting home with nothing else to do and panicking and, you know, uh, overstocking our pantries. Yeah, precisely. So so that was part of it. The other part related to that was what the Federal Reserve has been doing. You know, they've been raising interest rates to kind of cool off inflation. And, and what that means just from a basic economics perspective is that when you raise the cost of stuff, people buy less of it. And that's what you're, that's what you're trying to do. And so um, to the extent that that was the goal, it worked. That's not great for employment, for, for goods producing industries, but that Fed's policy has kind of worked overall, almost like threading the needle, which is really hard to do. Um, and so... You know, it also seems, Leslie, like that we're towards the end of that, if not at the end of that, because inflation has come way down. It's just above three percent now, and the job market still looks pretty good. So that kind of soft landing that folks were talking about seems entirely possible. And so we have that as a factor. And then one of the consequences of those higher interest rates is that it tends to make the value of the dollar stronger compared to the rest of the world. And we're already doing better economically than almost any other country in the world. In fact, Mm. almost any other country would want to be the United States of America right now, given our economic performance. Yeah, because you see see inflation going down in the United States. Gas prices are going, well, gas prices are more of an international thing, but yeah. You don't see inflation going down everywhere, especially at the rate it is here. Oh, no, that, that, that's right. And so, but what that does kind of like uh, paradoxically is when the value of the dollar is strong, it makes our exports more expensive, so it lowers them, and it makes imports cheaper, so they come in and displace some, some domestic stuff. So you had that going, too. So there's all of this that kind of was out there swirling around um, but I do think, and I know we'll get to this, that it's going to look a little different and a little better as we head into 2020. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to also talk about some of those people who've left the workforce. And it's not as easy to replace them as people think. We'll be back with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Please check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. On Twitter or X, follow AAM at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back with him, back with you right after this. Don't go away. How you doing? We are back. I am Leslie Marshall. He is Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. On Twitter, follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA and follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. Sorry, that's now X, formerly Twitter. Scott and I were talking about manufacturing jobs, huge uh, decrease. And people might say, see, the economy is not going well. It's actually because the economy is doing so well that the 390000 was cut down to twelve k. That and spending habits changed greatly um, after um, COVID and the lockdowns uh, in 2020 and 2021. And also the Fed Reserve's uh, interest rate hikes, um, you know, that cooled off the demand for some uh, U.S. products. Scott, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, but something else that you uh, wrote about and you mentioned uh, on LinkedIn um, is that 
there are a lot of workers, older workers uh, who retired that have worked in factories. Replacing them has been an issue apparently uh, for some employers, right? And we forget every year more people retire than the year before because we got that whole baby boomer uh, situation and that's going to go on for, you know, perhaps a a decade or at least half a decade um, of, uh, you know, that that baby boomer time period when people were born during, you know, those years. So you have, you know, because you had the baby boom, you have a large population of people and, you know, retiring year after year. And, you know, we're just seeing that we're seeing seniors become more and more the majority in this uh, in this country. Yeah, that's exactly right, is that you have you had in manufacturing a workforce that was that tilted kind of um, older. And, uh, you know, it's come it's come retirement time for. Uh, almost all of the boomers in manufacturing, and then a lot of the older Xers too. Um, you know, manufacturing production in manufacturing is a physical job. It's not like it used to be. You know, it might be just manipulating keyboards now, but there's still you know you, you have to be there in person, and there's other sorts of requirements like that. And so uh, you you tend to get a little earlier retirements than you might in some other professions, um, and it, it has been difficult to get young people kind of excited about careers in manufacturing. Now, not impossible, I will say, but just difficult. And part of that was just that there had been no muscle memory for uh, either uh, high schools or guidance counselors or technical colleges or even parents to kind of suggest this as a career path. But now there is. There's real good reason to be optimistic and excited. And these programs are getting built out. But it takes a little bit of time, and I think that we'll see, again, hiring pick up um, year over year as that as that pipeline, that talent pipeline, continues to get built out, Leslie. Well, you also had talked about um, optimism and looking yeah. ahead, um, and you know people want to you know hear that because when you hear a number drop like that, it seems like bad news. But you're like, no, it's not bad news; it, it, it's good news. Um, tell uh, you know, tell us some of the reasons for your optimism. Yeah, so I, I do think we'll see a rebound this year. Um, I mean, barring something unforeseen, uh, we, we can't predict any of that. And so, but if but if the trends continued, um, I do think that we'll see more hiring. And there's there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one, as I mentioned, is that talent pipeline is getting built out more fully, um, and there's more resources to do it. Second is that while it may have been not a great year for manufacturing jobs, it was a boom year for the construction of new manufacturing facilities, factories happening all over the country. And, you know, in clean energy, like solar, um, in new automobiles, like EVs, battery factories, um, in semiconductors, and, uh, and related to um, infrastructure spending. And so all of this um, is happening in, in you know, every state around the country. And those jobs right now, they're construction jobs, right? Because they're, they're building the factories, but once they go, go online, they're all gonna be hiring. And there will be you know, some attrition, like there won't be as many uh, internal combustion engine auto plants in the future as EVs kind of like phase up. But uh, as a net, I think at least for the time being, we're going to see a lot of manufacturing jobs being added as a result of that factory, factory construction. And, and so we'll see, we should see 
uh, a better 2024. And, you know, that and the fact that these these price, uh, you know, the interest rates and all of that are going to be leveling off. Right? You know, they might come down um, in some cases. And so that's that's certainly going to be a tailwind uh, as well. Is it fair to say that if you have construction jobs now, you'll have factory jobs later? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I'm, I mean, in this case, you know, the only thing that's going to derail these factories from coming online is a recession or if Republicans decide to pull the money for clean energy or EVs or infrastructure. And, you know, as much as they like to talk about it, Leslie, um, and vote against it, I'm not sure that they will because they love to go to those ribbon cutting ceremonies and take part of the credit for those factories coming online. Too, and we've seen that uh, in many circumstances around the country as well. Well, let, let's talk about some other things. Um, you know, you had talked about a second reason for optimism is the diversifying um, of supply chains, right? Yeah, I mean, you right. know, um, you, you talk about China not being as hot a destination for products overseas, Mexico, uh, Vietnam, uh, India. Uh, yeah. And you talk about the United States has to get higher up on that list. But you also refer to solid policies that are in place that, you know, spawn more optimism for you with regard to this. Yeah, I, I do think that's right. And, and one other kind of bright spot that we've seen is that the trade deficit with China directly is coming down uh, and coming down noticeably, not, not in a trivial way. And that means that we're getting goods from elsewhere. Now, uh, not enough of that is from here right now. Some of it is from here. A lot of that is from India, Vietnam, Mexico, some other countries. But eventually, once we get scale with these semiconductor factories, with the solar panel factories, with the, uh, the, the automotive factories, we'll see supply chains get built around those. And I mean, I think the, the great thing about the design of the policies that have been put into place the last couple of years is that to get the full benefits, uh, things have to be made in America. And so there will continue to be that kind of incentive to drive more production to the United States. And um, and so I think that there is some hope that that mix uh, is going to uh, is, go is going to get even better um, in the future as we look ahead. Um, you know, uh, quickly before we go to break, uh, the president is talking about Bidenomics. Made in America should certainly continue to be part of that Bidenomics package. Right. And that as a talking point. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, you hear at the debates or at any of the, you know, China, 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 or manufacturing jobs or tariffs or whatever, but, you know, it, or made in America. The, the key is having the right policies. And, and that's something that I think uh, Biden has done particularly well. It's not only the tariffs, it's also the investments and the workforce policies and, and creating a, a good climate for all of that. And so I think that combination is a very, very powerful one. But look, we'll continue to hold him accountable, Congress accountable, any Republican talking about this accountable, uh, and watch what they're doing uh, rather than what they're saying. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with Scott. Scott Paul is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Check out the website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Follow him on X at Scott Paul, AAM, formerly Twitter, and follow the AAM at Keep It Made in USA. We'll be back with him and you right after this. 
We are back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. He is Scott Paul. And I say we, he is president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. And we are talking with him today um, about the state of manufacturing. You can check out more information we may not cover here today. We only have one hour to talk with him. AmericanManufacturing.org is the website. Also, Scott writes a lot of things and, you know, check him out on LinkedIn, Facebook. Follow him on Twitter, formerly known as Twitter, now X, at Scott Paul AAM. And also the same for the AAM. Follow them on X, formerly Twitter, at Keep It Made in USA. Um, thank you for holding Scott. Welcome back. Um, Elizabeth, uh, Brotherton Brunt, Bunch, excuse me. I always want to say brunch. Uh, we, we've had on the program, a great uh, employee of AAM, uh, wrote a, a great piece uh, about two new books, follow companies that keep it made, uh, in America. And, uh, I wanted to talk about a, a couple of books. Um, and, uh, I wanted, well, first of all, you know, why, why do you think Elizabeth wrote about this and, and she brought this up? Yeah. I mean, Look, it's usually books about American manufacturing, I'm just going to say it, are boring, okay? <laughs> they're, they're, no. they're about policy, they're, you know, economic-focused or focused on the history of manufacturing policy in the United States dating back to Alexander Hamilton. And I like them, but most people are like, going to be like, no. But, but now we have two well-written, really interesting com- contemporary stories about entrepreneurs who had a vision to make a product wholly in the United States uh, and did so successfully. And, uh, and this is, you know, there's not one but two examples of this. And so it's kind of cool. And it's funny because Beth and I were talking. I was like, wow, it's like when it rains, it pours. It reminds me of when those two magic movies came out uh, back with the, uh, Ed Norton and the Christopher Nolan movie, uh, The Illusionists and The Prestige. It's like you never see magic movies. Then all of a sudden there were two. Right. And she's like, oh, yeah, like the two volcano movies back in the 90s that came out the same time. So we're blessed to have two awesome stories about uh, about great people who have managed to stand up uh, companies that are making hoodies and other things in the United States. Well, you know, um uh, first, uh, let's talk about making it in America, the almost impossible quest to manufacture in the USA and how it got that way. Um, that officially releases Tuesday. It was written by Rachel Slade, and the book examines the history of manufacturing in the United States, including that decline in the 20th century. And it also charts, of course, for how to get things back on track. You should have written this, <laughs> but, or, or at least that part of it and collaborated with it, right? Um, what I like about this is, like you said, this is not boring. It's not just like, you know, a bunch of stats. It's not for people who are inside the manufacturing bubble, whether they work uh, in manufacturing or they lobby for, you know, a better situations for those who, you know, run manufacturing companies and the workers that, you know, they uh, employ. But, you know, I love history. I know, you know, you love history, obviously, you know, when you when you talk about Hamilton um, and, and but there are a lot of people interested in in things in our nation, whether it's the, you know, Triangle Shirt Factory fire, um, whether it's child labor laws, which you have a state in the United States wanting to do away with yeah. in 2024. So um, I, I think this is, you know, this is sexy and exciting manufacturing speak, you know, in this book, most definitely. This is, and I almost had it there. Uh, it's a little boring. But at any rate, um, it, it is a great book. And it, it talks, it's available now. 
And the great thing that the author, Rachel Slade, does is follow uh, the, this very interesting couple, uh, Ben and Whitney Waxman. And I knew Ben. He used to work at the AFL-CIO years ago. And he moved to Maine and was like, you know what? I, I want to try to do this. I want to try to make garments in the United States with a unionized workforce and have an all-American supply chain and be able to do this successfully, right? And, and you know, everybody was probably like, you're crazy, man. This is never going to work. But uh, he and his partner figured out how to do it, and they have a factory in Maine. The company's called American Roots. They make hoodies and uh, and vests and other things. They're really awesome. Uh, their workforce is represented by the United Steelworkers. Um, many of the workers are, interestingly, refugees, not only immigrants, but refugees uh, from places that have been really hard hit over the last few years. And um, they were able to pivot and make some PPE uh, to your, we were talking about this earlier, Leslie, uh, during the pandemic. And now, you know, it's like they have this, they have this hoodie business. And I am reasonably sure that the book that Rachel Slate has written will help to, uh, you know, help to help to put even more attention on that. And their, their idea just to turn this dream into a reality. And, and as Rachel Slate indicates, it's not easy to do this because there, our ecosystem for making textiles or garments is so small in the United States compared to what, what it used to be is that it really takes um, a, it is like a treasure hunt. I mean, you know, to find these suppliers, whether it's zippers or whatever, and there just aren't that many of them. And so it takes a lot of hard work. The easy thing to do is just to say, call up a contractor in China and say, hey, do this. But they're like, no, we're, we're going to do this. And they've done it successfully. And Leslie, to me, that shows that if you have the intent, if you have the intent that you can make a product like this successfully in the United States. But, but you got to start with this idea that I can do it and I'm committed to this to make it happen. Well, a couple of things I love here is um, that's another thing I, I you know, you, Americans are excited about, which is seeing the American dream play out, you know, in real time, seeing the American dream, you know, possible for somebody else. So therefore it's possible for me. And that's what the story of Ben and Whitney Waxman, you know, does. There are yeah. many Ben and Whitney Waxmans out there. And one of the people reading it could be the next Ben and Whitney Waxman. Um, the company is American Roots. Like you said, you know, it's in, it's in Maine. Um, the author uh, Slade, uh, Ms. Slade, she said in an opinion piece for the New York Times that she, quote, inherited my father's made in the USA credo. Um, and that she said she would hunt for labels, flipping over plates and chairs and turning clothes inside out to find a country of origin. And when she spent time with the Waxman, she understood that what they are doing is almost impossible because the deck, the deck is stacked against them every day is a struggle. So there's so much in this book. It's not just history. It's not just an underdog winning. And you can, I think almost everybody can champion that and the American dream, but it's all of this put together, you know, which makes the book not boring at all. And certainly not, as she says, not wonky. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's enough policy to show people kind of like what the, what the, how the deck is stacked against everybody and how that's changed. But most of it is this, is this narrative that's just really interesting about how you, 
have this idea, um, and then really the trials and tribulations to get it up and running. Um, and then once it's up and running, to have to deal with the pandemic and then its aftermath um, and, and, and to keep on going and then to find that public opinion and everything else is finally caught up with you. So, you know, you know, what's interesting is before the prep for this interview with you today, I didn't know about this book. Yeah. And one of the companies on your list, which has been on the list before, but was on the list again this year was American Roots. And I am from Boston and I like to buy gifts that are unique and I like to buy gifts that, you know, are local. And I have family that are in New Hampshire. I have family uh, in Maine and I have family in Massachusetts. And I actually bought something from American Roots this yeah. year. So it brought a smile to my face that saw their their, their company and their owners, um, you know, were, were two that were being profiled, if you will, in this book about manufacturing. Yeah, it's a pretty great, pretty special story. I hope people will uh, will will be able to pick it up. And the work that they're doing and the fact that they're able to do it, not taking the low road either, Leslie. It's like they have this they have the steelworkers union representing the workers, um, and they are making it work, even though it takes hard work to do that. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll talk about the second book when we come back, and we're also going to talk about uh, China now being uh, the world's exporter in uh, top uh, automobiles um, and not uh, and not Japan, right? Um, and this only reinforces the need for tariffs from here in the United States. We'll talk about that with Scott and you right after this. Don't go away. Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing, is our guest. Website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Check it out on Twitter formerly Twitter, now X. I keep saying Twitter still still sounds better, doesn't it? Uh, AA, we hate change, right, to a degree. Uh, follow AAM at Keep It Made in USA. Follow Scott at Scott Paul AAM. I'm Leslie Marshall. Back to him. Back to you right after this. We're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. Welcome or welcome back. Talking too fast. Only true democracy and talk. I'm here with Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Uh, we are talking with Scott regarding a lot of things today, and I want you to follow him on Twitter, formerly Twitter, now X, Scott, at Scott Paul AAM, on X, formerly Twitter, at Keep It Made in USA, and the website is AmericanManufacturing.org. A lot of great information there. Um, speaking of information, Scott and I were talking about uh, two new books that follow companies that keep it made in America about manufacturing. You might think, oh, my God, that's going to be so boring. Not at all. The first we talked about before the break, making it in America, the almost impossible quest to manufacturer in the USA and how to get and how it got that way. And in the second uh, that we're going to uh, talk about that, for, if you're just tuning in, we were talking about the company American Roots in Maine. Uh, but this one is titled American Flannel. How a band of entrepreneurs are bringing the art and business of making clothes back home, um, and this uh, this center is not just on manufacturing, but it spotlights American apparel makers, and there are more and more of those every single year. Um, Scott, your thoughts? This is written by Stephen uh, Kuritz, if I'm saying his last name right, and um, he he talks about uh, the American uh, the the American giant. Um, is one company, another uh, a company is uh, Zicano. Is that how you say it? Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, Steve Kurtz is a um, uh, kind of style and uh, fashion writer for for the New York Times. He's been covering this industry for a long time, and he got interested in the story of uh, Bayard Winthrop, who is the CEO of a company called American Giant. American Giant has been at this for um, a little over a decade now, and again, it was this guy who had been in. Um, you know, kind of branding and, uh, you know, on the business side for companies that, that mostly did global manufacturing. And he saw the opportunity to try to make a hoodie in the United States. And <clears throat> Bayard's based out on the West Coast, um, but did this uh, the same process that uh, Ben and Whitney did, you know, to locate suppliers, to... Uh, find a way to do this kind of profitably to find the right price point um, and, and to be able to scale this up and uh, and to make one of those hoodies that is durable that like you know if you get if you get these things in the mail now uh, you know and you wash it three times it's done right but this is going to last the you know you want to make a hoodie that's going to last you the as long as you wanted to wear it for as many years, um, and he has. I've had I've had my American Giant hoodie for I want to say um, at least ten years now, um, and it, it looks even better than it did on day one. But his story is really interesting, and uh, and then Zacano is a um, sock company, and this is this is a little bit of American trivia. Fort Payne, Alabama. Uh, was once called like the sock capital of the world, and it were it's where all those white tube socks, Leslie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure you remember though; those were made, um, and, and it was an entire basically city built around this industry, and there were factories everywhere, and all they did was make socks. And needless to say, with outsourcing and lower tariffs, everything got uh, you know stripped down. And taken away, and there's very little left. But uh, Gina Locklear, whose parents had been kind of around this industry, and she grew up in this town, said, "I want to try to do this." And she she makes these really cool um, socks uh, with uh, organic cotton, all these colorful patterns, um, and is able to do it uh, in, uh, in in Fort Payne, Alabama, uh, as well, and kind of giving giving back to the community where she. Grew up, so th- this tracks two really interesting stories um, as well, and, and then just the author's association with Woolrich. He's from this, basically the same town that Woolrich uh, was located in uh, Pen- Pennsylvania, and I'm sure you remember that brand as well, and yeah. how they barely make anything here now, and it's all been outsourced. But again, really super interesting stories about how this happened and how both Gina and Bayard were able to. Uh, launch successful enterprises uh, in the face of great, great odds um, stacked against them. Well, American Flannel, how a band of entrepreneurs are bringing the art business of making clothes back home. You know, people might say, well, Scott, you're a manufacturing guy, manufacturing wonk. You know, you're going to really like this. (laughs) But it is very interesting when somebody who is a great author themselves likes it. And uh, there's there's praise from author Stephen King. Stephen King is a fan of American Flannel. It isn't set to release until March 12th, but people like him get a preview. Um, And he said, quote, he was hooked from the very first page. And this is coming from a guy that's a heck of a storyteller that can keep you on the edge of your seat. And he 
uh, was hooked from the very first page. So uh, he said uh, the story he tells is as important as it is absorbing. First, it's an uplifting tale of good old American inventiveness and stick to the best kind of underdog story. It is also a cautionary tale about ha- what happens when a country becomes so rich and complacent, complacent, it forgets how to create as well as buy. I can confidently say that this will be one of my favorite books of 2024. That's a ringing endorsement. If yeah. somebody is somebody who writes so well and interestingly and exciting as Stephen King finds it interesting and exciting, you know, and he's hooked on the very first page. Yeah, you know, that 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 would that would make me if I weren't interested in manufacturing want to go out and buy it. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that it has cliffhangers uh, in the way that uh, Stephen King does, but but I th- but but no dead is- pet, no dead pets coming back to life. <laughs> <laughs> no pets were harmed in the making of it. That's right, but. But that said, it is a it is a well told story, just like Rachel Slade's, and super interesting. And uh, little known fact, and I, I just learned this too, is that Stephen King, you know, who everybody knows is from Maine, right, yep. uh, actually worked in at a, as a young man in a in a uh, mill uh, that made that made textiles, and I think flannel in particular. And that's kind of the framework of this book is that. You know, flannel is so American, right? I mean, it is like the, you know, you think the woodsman. And it's so uh, Maine. You think of the, you think oh, of the brawny paper towel guy, the lumberjack, yeah. the picture of the guy, and he's wearing the black yeah. and red uh, flannel shirt. Yeah, it's like, and, and or cowboys or whatever, okay? So flannel, super American. We actually got to the point, Leslie, where we didn't make any of it here. None of it. Not, it completely disappeared I mean, the Japanese loved American flannel and they like bought all the stuff and started making it there so that it wasn't all made in low cost countries. But but when when Bayard Winthrop wanted to, in addition to make a hoodie, try to make a flannel shirt, he really had to reinvent the wheel uh, here. And so I think that was that to me was really fascinating. And I do. And I'm not wearing it today, which I'm embarrassed about. But I have one of the American uh, the American giant flannel shirts and they're awesome. And it's like, it's like, this is, and you just feel good about wearing something that is like American. It's like buying an American flag that would be made in Asia. You don't want to well, do also that. Also, when you read this book, yeah. you know the history of what you're wearing. It's really cool. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's really, really well done. So it's, I, I hope folks, uh, if they're looking for a, a read uh, of the fireplace or an audio book or whatever, yeah. you know, it's, they're, they're both really interesting. And they're great kind of like well-told case studies about how we yeah. got yeah, and Stephen King says so too, right? Okay, let's. Uh, you had mentioned Japan. We only have a couple minutes left. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned Japan and, and the flannel shirts. Well, let's talk about Japan. We also know Japan was the top uh, auto exporter. Uh, China has, uh, you know, uh, one upped them uh, last year in 2023. This just reinforces the need for U.S. tariffs. Yeah. Uh, tell tell us about that. Yeah. And you've spoken to us to about this before. Yeah. This is something to watch out for. I mean, there, there's not a lot of Chinese-made vehicles in the United States right now. They're just they they, they did for a variety of reasons. One of which is we have a 27 and a half percent tariff on them, so it's very hard for them to come in. But we don't want to see, you know, for the our auto sector, what happened with textiles or steel or a lot of other things where we're hanging on and we're getting it back, but man, we were close to complete like extinction on that. And so China just became last year the world's largest auto exporter. And so look out, uh, the European Union is seeing this. They, they've started up a trade case. 
Uh, Japan's got to be concerned. Uh, we're concerned. But it is a because it's about jobs. It's, the, it's about the ability to keep that manufacturing ecosystem in your country. And those Chinese companies have a massive, massive advantage because their government subsidizes them. It's not like they make better cars. They just have the weight of the government behind them. And that's just not fair. So that's something to look out for as, as we look ahead. And the, the allure of the Chinese vehicles is that they're super cheap, but uh, it comes with a really steep cost to the rest of us. Yeah, we know what their T-shirts do, right? Buy three for, you know, 10 bucks. Well, that that's not what you want in a vehicle, you know, most certainly. Um, Scott, thank you for being with us. Scott Paul, president of the Alliance for American Manufacturing. Happy New Year, my friend, again. Check out their website, AmericanManufacturing.org. Uh, on Twitter, now X, uh, follow them, the AAM, at Keep It Made in USA. And follow Scott, Scott Paul, at Scott Paul, AAM. Uh, thank you to Scott. Thank you to Marky Mark Romaldi, my executive producer. And I hope everybody has a wonderful day. If you're in the Midwest, stay warm. I hear it's freezing there and you're getting hit hard. 